You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and are talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the show, talking about Nelson George's Hip Hop America, which is 24 years old now. Uh, before we get into that real quick, I was supposed to be talking about distributed blackness, but I'm putting it off again because I started reading this book. It's about hip hop. I love hip hop. And I want to talk about this. So I'll get to distributed blackness at some point. I am no longer going to say when I'm going to get to it because uh, I keep making myself out to be a liar. Or as my father would say, I keep calling myself a liar. And I don't want to do that. So at some point, I'll be talking about distributed blackness by Andre Brock. But today, Hip Hop America by Nelson George. Uh, Which is a book that I don't even remember how... I came to it. I just know that I wanted to read about hip-hop. There was another book by Jeff Chang, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, and I wanted to read this one instead because I kind of sort of remembered Nelson George growing up uh, because I used to read the different uh, hip-hop magazines here and there. Mostly I read basketball magazines, but I definitely read XXL, Vibe, and The Source, and I'm not positive which ones he wrote for. I think he may have written for... Like, all three in some capacity. I think he did a lot of freelance stuff. But I don't think he was a staff writer at any of those, necessarily. But so, yeah, I don't know when I came to this book exactly. It was just sitting in my shopping cart, and then one day, every month, basically, at the beginning of the month, I, I decided to buy too many books, and this was one of them. And it came in the mail, and then I read it. So that's it. So here's the thing. I, I really love hip-hop, like, love, 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 love hip-hop. So this is going to be a super disjointed podcast because I'm just going to talk about the things that interest me in the book. There's not really a through line here. I mean, he starts at the beginning of hip-hop, 1970s, uh, with um, Africa Bombada and DJ Cool Herc and uh, Grandmaster Flash and Rapper's Delight and all of that. And and then he goes through until like 1998 and then there's a follow-up chapter in 2004. Yeah. So there's a, there's an addendum that he writes after the book was first published. But other than that, there's not really a through line. So if you don't know the story of hip-hop, I mean, I don't even know why you'd be interested in this podcast. Um, I mean, specifically one called Hip-Hop America. But if you don't know the story of hip-hop, I'm not going to really recount it. Oh, I guess we can recount it really quick. Um, basically, it starts in the Boogie Down Bronx in the 1970s. Uh, cool Herc starts playing like Jamaican style. Um, they're using Jamaican equipment to play these like funk records, and then he starts talking over them, and that's kind of just where everything starts. And then you know other people imitate his style, and they start doing these house parties where they set up all this equipment, and uh, and yeah, and and the cool thing about this book is that Nelson George. So first of all, Cool Herc was born in Jamaica in 1955. Nelson George was born in New York in 1957. Um, Africa Bombada was born in New York in 1957. So all these guys are like my father's age. And it's very interesting because, one, anybody from my father's age, who anybody who is my father's age, who was born in the South, definitely or usually is not into hip-hop. 
And so it's interesting to think of these guys being into hip-hop, but that's how early and regional it was. It's Nelson George takes great uh, pains to make obvious that hip-hop was only in New York for like a good decade, basically, from like its inception up until it's, um, you know, it's uh, starting to become like slightly more of a national-type music thing, and then it's full-on explosion into the national music scene. Um, there's a good decade where it was just New Yorkers. So really the youngest hip hop people who are not from New York are probably a full 10 years younger than, uh, Nelson George and the guys he's writing about. And that's just really cool to see. So he's got this really interesting relationship to hip hop because he started covering it from the very beginning. He wrote for hip hop publications from the very beginning and he was writing about hip hop so long ago that he actually got dismissed from a job for writing black English. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't get dismissed from a job in 2022 for writing black English, but if someone hired you to write about hip-hop and you weren't writing in black English and you were black, and and you're writing for a black publication, you know, it'd be weird. Like, I I grew up reading, like I said, XXL, The Source, not really vibe so much. And, you know, yeah, writing in the vernacular or whatever, if that's the way you talk and that's the way you feel comfortable writing, would be normal. But he was writing so long ago that it was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we got to get you up out of here. You can't you can't be writing stuff like that. So he really was there from the beginning. So that's an interesting perspective. But other than that, all right, so that's the little history lesson for this book. And then from there, he just kind of moves through the history up until 1998. And, you know, he talks about all kinds of different things. The clothing, the culture surrounding it, so breakdancing and graffiti are the classic things and then DJing or turntablism, and then actual MCs. These are all uh, things that surround the culture that have, you know, ebbed and flowed and and come on stronger and weaker throughout the history of hip-hop. I would say right now, breakdancing and graffiti are pretty low. Uh, Not low, just not, like, super important to the culture of hip-hop at the present moment, and really weren't when I was a kid, so... Um, That's very, very early, you know, that New York hip-hop stuff. But he talks about all of that stuff. Then he talks about, you know, battles with uh, different uh, conservative elements in America, both black and white, and uh, usually Republican, but not necessarily the black side. And he talks about the growing regionalism in hip-hop. So all of that's in there. But all right, we're just going to hit the highlights of things that we like. Uh, oh, wait, la- one last thing on Nelson George is he, he does throw in an occasional self-promotion. Not that it's not well-deserved. I mean, the guy was writing about hip-hop back before people knew what it was. So on page 32, he says, Luckily for me, I was in sync with the times. I moved into the industry mainstream just as hip-hop began to get noticed outside of black hoods in New York, specifically those very midtown offices that had been touting disco as the record business's savior. It would take time for those executives, black and white, to truly get it. And looking back, I'd have to say I played a part in delivering that wake-up call. So a little bit of a brag, but, I mean, he really did. So that's awesome, you know. It's really awesome. And Nelson George also wrote CB4 and has written a bunch of other stuff, too. So you can check out his work. He's not like, this isn't the only thing he's done or something. Yeah, on the forefront of hip-hop journalism. Okay, rapid-fire things that I enjoyed and probably me talking too much about different types of hip-hop that I like. Let's do it. First thing, I forgot how much hip-hop owes to Jamaica. You know, Jamaica's such an amazing place. All of the islands, really. And I'm not talking about the Caribbean. I just mean island nations with, like, outsized importance in the world. You know, you have Jamaica, uh, England, uh, whether or not that importance is good or bad. Um, you have Japan, 
you know, it's just like accomplished so much as like a small country. And there's tons of other nations. I'm just naming those three. But like Jamaica, given this hip hop, because Cool Herc was actually born in Jamaica. Bombada, African Bombada's mom was from Jamaica. And then Grandmaster Flash was, you know, using these Jamaican uh, sounds that Cool Herc had pioneered. So there's really an indebtedness to Jamaica that I I had forgotten about. Now, I think that Nelson George overemphasizes, because maybe in 1998 this was true, he overemphasizes how much we've forgotten about the roots of hip-hop. I feel like my generation, so I was born in 85, 1998 is like peak i'm just getting into hip-hop time like that's right around when uh, the uh, 2001's about to come out and stuff like and, and eminem's just coming out dmx uh, it's dark and hell is hot and flesh my flesh blood of my blood lauren hill comes out shortly after that Nas comes out again like he had taken a break so that's peak hip-hop time for me i told you i was gonna talk too much about hip-hop but um I feel like at that time we knew the story. Like I knew it started in the Bronx. We were just digging into like the history of it. It's only 20 years later. You know what I mean? It's not like some horrible miscarriage of justice that we didn't know. So I feel like that part's a little bit overemphasized in the book because I think in the early 90s with the rise of uh, gangster rap, like people kind of forgot where hip hop came from and stuff. And there was so much talk around the obscenity in the music that people forgot about how it started and stuff. That being said, the Jamaican aspect of it, I think, is still underplayed. Like, we just owe a huge debt to Jamaica. And then probably the coolest thing about all of this and the framing of it that he puts in the book is what I want to read a little passage from here. He frames it as tech innovation. And you never really hear of hip-hop talked about like that. You don't really typically hear of black people and... um technological innovation being put in the same sentence like it's hardly ever framed that way it's more like oh this inventiveness of the soulful people with their connection to the earth but yeah he says in fact an interest in technology led many african-american teens from park parties to record engineering and once they had the cash to learning how to set up home studios and later to embrace sampling and later to embracing sampling this molding of technology to fit a black aesthetic became a hallmark of hip-hop it's really never framed that way. It's more framed like, oh, they forgot how to sing. You know, those, especially like people who are like around my dad's age. Oh, they don't know how to sing anymore. Or if you're like, um, what's my man's name? Stanley Crouch. Oh, they don't know how to play uh, instruments anymore. And so they just started filling around with these drum machines and that's it. But it's never framed as like, oh no, these guys were like, you know, uh, I think Cool Herc was actually like an actual electrician. It's like, oh yeah, I, I toyed with this machine and the wires, like you know, scientifically until I figured it out. Never framed that way. Thought that was really important. And um, one of my favorite passages in the book. All right. Boom. Rapid fire number two. Oh, oh and the reason that related to Jamaica, just real quick, is because, again, Cool Herc was the guy. He's, he's the one with this, using this um, Jamaican sound system. And it was a Jamaican sound system. It's what they used to do dub, you know. All right. So on to the next rapid fire. Uh, we have New York versus America. Now, Again, I've already given Nelson George credit for being there on the scene, and I've already stated that uh, New York um, invented hip-hop. I'm from California, so this is paining me to do this. And I have to say, you know, for my whole life, I was more of a New York rap fan than a Los Angeles rap fan. I wasn't really, you know, Snoop, Dre, Corrupt, Exhibit. Didn't really love them. I loved Dell. But, you know, that's like a different type of thing. I never really liked Ice Cube. 
Ice-T, any of the dudes in, you know, MC Ren, uh, DOC, not in um, WA, but didn't really love him. Just really wasn't a West Coast guy. Loved the New York guys. And so I'm not being biased when I say that I think Nelson George oversells how much L.A. hates America. Now, excuse me, how much uh, L.A. hates New York. Now, at the time he wrote the book, we were just coming off the East Coast, West Coast fracas and stuff. Um, But in general, if you take it outside the context of hip hop, I don't really think that L.A. hates New York whatsoever. So let me read the passage. On page 130, he says, It has always been the vast, less concentratedly urban body of the nation versus New York. An aesthetic battle of country-funkified folks against the egotistical double standards of my hometown. Ice Cube wasn't just speaking for South Central. He was articulating a disdain attraction for New York City that is larger than rap. I really feel like that's just such nonsense. Like, I think New Yorkers hate L.A., more than L.A. hates New Yorkers. Now, again, we're taking this outside of rap. Within rap, okay, for sure, because New York started it, and they were, like, super cocky about it, just in the hip-hop sense of it, and, um, you know, Cube and Pac and that whole situation. Well, I mean, Pac, that whole situation, but also he's referring to a specific Ice Cube uh, record that had nothing to do with, like, specifically the Tupac and uh, Biggie thing. Outside of that, I really feel like it's New Yorkers who come to L.A. and they're like, oh, look at them. They don't even have subways. You can't get a bagel here. Nobody goes to New York and says something like that. I mean, yeah, okay, if you go to New York, you might say, oh, you can't get Mexican food. But whatever. It's like, who cares? I'm in New York. You know, it's cool. Yeah, they got the skyscrapers. That's cool. They got this. That's cool. We don't have that in L.A. Okay. And then we go back to L.A. We have the weather and a beautiful ocean and great Mexican food and like a hundred other things that are really nice. And also just people being like, chill you know they just don't have that they just don't have that in new york nobody can just be chill everybody's always got to be so hype about it and you know it's like that scene in annie hall where uh, woody allen uh goes out of his way to just uh take a shot at la everybody's always taking a shot at la so i feel like it's the exact opposite and then this is one of the more arrogant things in the world to lump la in with like the flyover states and yeah that's a coastal elite term and i used it But it's completely ridiculous for him to be like, oh yeah, it's not really New York versus L.A. It's New York versus, what do you say, country funkified? It's ridiculous. So, Nelson George, that's low-key, that's like a rap-level shot that he took at him. Oh, and then later on in the book, he makes a claim. So he's got this nice little section about Philadelphia and stuff. And he's talking about Iverson, and he says Iverson, although he's from Virginia, has like New York connection. It's like, good lord. Uh, Do you guys just have to like try to claim everything now you're trying to claim iverson he's clearly not from new york i mean my father's from louisiana i claim a a link to the south so i guess there is something like of that you could say but they really they're really going for too much next uh rapid fire thing we're making good time we're not spending too much time on me uh was the raptors this is his name for rap actors uh i will say that that's not going to catch on but yeah at this point he named l cool j ice cube Ice-T, Queen Latifah, and Will Smith, uh, which, at, you know, in the 90s, that was for sure, that was the crew. And it's interesting because every single one of those people dabbled in some version of hardcore rap, except for Will Smith, and then Will Smith has had the most fame. I'm going to refuse to talk about Will Smith in the context of 2022 because nobody wants to hear my take on that. 
But yeah, just interesting that those are the five people, four out of the five, dabbled in pretty hardcore rap, especially Ice-T and Ice Cube. Queen Latifah was more like Afrocentric. LL Cool J, I mean, he really did it all. And all of them found mainstream success, though. It's like, it's not, I don't think Will Smith found more mainstream success because his rap was not hardcore. And also, as long as we're saying not hardcore, we have to clarify. It's not just that his rap isn't hardcore, it's that it sucks, right? Like, you know, you could be a not hardcore rapper and uh, have good rap music. Like, A Tribe Called Quest and the whole Native Roots movement, like De La Soul, you know. They, they're not like gangster rappers whatsoever, and their music is great. So, it's just that Will Smith's songs suck. Parents don't understand, it's fine. Anyway, he just found the most mainstream success, probably because he's the most talented actor of the bunch, uh, I would say. So, there you go. Oh, but then another funny thing about this was that on page 208, Nelson George is talking about, like, the slang and how quickly it moves in hip-hop, and it definitely does. That's why, like, whatever era of hip-hop you were raised in, and really just, you know, whatever era of the black community you were raised in. You should just stick to that slang. I find myself, like, now I try never to say uh, that's cap or stop the cap or no cap. Even if I'm doing it in writing, it's just so not what I grew up with. I just feel like a loser even saying it. But one of the things that he talked about on page 208 was getting jiggy with it. Like, mention that as a slang word. And I have to just say, as someone who was alive in 1998, and very much that's my era, there was never a single black person, even in the suburbs where I grew up, who would, in good faith, use that phrase without thinking about the fact that they're going to get roasted. There's Unless they just have zero black friends. There's no way that you could say getting jiggy with it with a straight face around any other black person. And I don't even know if you could say it around white people and uh, and get away with that. So... I don't, he slipped up there, but that's okay. I mean, he's writing this book, he's like 40, and he's an OG, so you're gonna, you know, you're gonna make some mistakes. But yeah, yeah absolutely zero people have ever said getting jiggy with it uh, unironically. So the next rapid fire thing was, in one section he talks about Philadelphia and the sound of Philadelphia in general. Doesn't talk about the hip-hop as much, just kind of like the embodiment of a city through its basketball players. It's an interesting little chapter, but it I just like it because he talks about Philadelphia, Dr. J, Charles Barkley, Iverson, and this is obviously long before he knew Embiid was coming out, but Joel Embiid, that's a pretty good foursome of, like, huge personalities, all completely different. And it really was a good microcosm for, like, popular black music in general. So you have Dr. J, who's like the, I don't know, he's like the classiest man in the history of the NBA, and he's black, and he's awesome, you know, and everybody would want to be Dr. J, he was super cool, well-spoken, all of that, then you get Barkley, funny, well-spoken, but like brash, then you get Iverson, who was my era, and everybody wanted to be Iverson, I wasn't even Iverson fan, and I had his shoes, like he wasn't my favorite player, I had a pair of his shoes, and I also had a free Iverson t-shirt when he got into prison, after the draft. I don't know. I can't remember what it was. It had to be around the year 2000. So, yeah. And then and then now Joel Embiid. And I think is the point of the chapter is that, like, we go from Dr. J, which is, like, you know, soul disco era, into Barkley Iverson transitioning into, like, a hip-hop era brashness. And then Embiid, 
Uh, he's kind of like fun hip-hop era now. Hip-hop's like completely mainstream, so B doesn't seem ridiculous. Like, Barkley seemed ridiculous. Iverson was like a cult hero that uh, certain sectors of the uh, of the basketball, or excuse me, of the sports-watching world, sports-watching America didn't accept. I mean, you still have that with that um, the idiot who's on ESPN First Take right now, J.J. Reddick, tore down the other day saying things about Draymond Green or whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, we're, we're done with that. That was 1998. So you still have an aspect of that, but uh, it's it's definitely changed for the better now. And just interesting that Phillies had, you know, four guys like that. Now you can go through any franchise and find four dudes. Like the Lakers, obviously, are a super famous franchise, right? So they had Wilt, and they had Kareem, and they had Shaq, and they had Magic, and they had Kobe. But, like, those aren't the same kind of figures as uh as dr j barkley iverson and beat i would argue and wilt didn't like and also like uh these guys were all as completely associated with philly well barkley and iverson were drafted barkley iverson and beat were drafted by philly dr j was not but um i feel like it's more organic the la thing nothing's ever organic you know out of the guys i just named they drafted kobe that's it right they didn't draft Wilt. oh they drafted kobe and magic so you know and then other franchises, I don't really think they they hit like those four guys. It's kind of perfect, so I like that. All right, and then uh, he had a whole chapter on capitalism and how hip-hop's like the perfect, perfect uh, it's a capitalist tool is what he called it. Uh, I, I've always argued that it's the, anybody who is critical of hip-hop doesn't like it because it is the barest expression it lays bare everything that america is actually about and it makes people uncomfortable that's what people don't like about hip-hop the uncomfortable feeling that it's telling them the 100 percent truth now of course there are other problems with it like misogyny and homophobia and things like that but when you take those aspects out and you still have people criticizing it what they're really what they're really criticizing is oh i would rather not know that that's what things are like all right so that's the serious discussion of it the more interesting discussion is just the idea of hip-hop fashion. And I don't really know if this exists anymore. Now, I know for, you know, in 2022 when I listen to hip-hop, I'll hear, I'll hear about Balenciagas, like Cardi B mentions them. And I'll hear about uh, Off-White or, you know, Gucci, I think is still, you know, kind of mentioned, but not, not as much. Things like that. But back when I was a boy, uh, we had so many random, you know, Fat Farm, FUBU. And Timberlands weren't necessarily specifically hip-hop. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger's mentioned in the book, Ralph Lauren, P&B, Sean John, Lugs, Carl Kanai, Cross Colors, which is very early 90s, didn't really happen when I was a kid. Uh, Rock Aware, he doesn't mention in the book. Echo, he doesn't mention in the book. LRG, he doesn't mention in the book. I feel like LRG was like the last urban brand that I, I really... Oh, Supreme would be another thing that I should mention about 2022, Supreme. But that's where we're starting to get from, like, specifically, like, hip-hop wear into, like, urban street wear. And I know that it still exists, but I feel like it wasn't... I, I feel like if you see somebody in a Supreme shirt now, or a Supreme hat now, or whatever, if I see somebody wearing Off-White, if I see somebody wearing Balenciagas, maybe they listen to hip-hop, maybe they just are, you know, alive in 2022. Whereas if somebody was wearing Rockaware in 1998... Or whenever Rockwear came out, sometime when I was in high school, somebody was wearing Rockwear in 2002. 
I would have been like, oh yeah, they, they listen to hip hop. I mean, there's no, there's no chance that that person wearing rockerwear with a chin strap, white or black, doesn't listen to hip hop. So I just thought that was interesting. And then the other two things from this chapter that I just didn't even realize was that Sprite had a commercial with a tribe called Quest. How did I not see this as a kid? I never saw that. And then so it made me think about the Vince Staples Sprite commercial, and he was arguing with some people on Twitter about it. And they were like, oh, you sold out. And that's always been a, a refrain throughout hip-hop. But people have been selling out since the beginning. Run DMC, who, just my personal opinion, Run DMC sucks. But yeah, people have been selling out since the beginning. Did not realize that A Tribe Called Quest had a Sprite commercial. It kind of really threw me off. And then I watched the Snoop Dogg St. Ides commercial, which I think I may have seen. Once I watched it, it feels like I had seen it before. But I, I really don't remember. And I don't think they were playing that one in the suburbs, going to be completely honest with you. But maybe. And then, oh, I, you know, Two Live Crew and C. Dolores Tucker are two 90s things that are so, so, so ubiquitous and important. And I never understood Two Live, two live Crew's importance to Southern hip hop or like the Miami music, any of that, any of the songs that came out of there, like, uh, Whoop, There It Is, or any of these songs that were like just everywhere around the 90s. I never really understood that. Like, I didn't... Uh, so we have Woomp, there it is. Excuse me. <laughs> Woomp, there it is. Uh, Tootsie Roll, Ride the Train. I know all of these songs. Like, I could... If, if you put them on, I would know exactly what you're talking about. I just... And I would sing along with them. I just remember growing up hearing them thinking, like, well, that's not hip-hop. It's not R&B. I don't know what it is. But okay, it's all right on the radio for right now. It's on 92.3 The Beat. Okay, fine. Like, you know, it would just be one of those songs. Uh... I didn't realize like how much Two Live Crew developed or um, inspired that sound. I didn't realize they were really like hip hop at all. I mean, it's definitely hip hop. It just wasn't my kind of hip hop. Like I said, I liked the New York guys more. Short of that, I liked the West Coast guys. And then Southern hip hop was really taken off right around the you know right around the two thousand era. Not that it hadn't always been there, but like. It was becoming an, it was becoming a national spotlight thing because of the crunk music like Lil John and the Yin Yang Twins and all that. But I just didn't ever put together Two Live Crew and um, and their Im- impact on like Miami and you know Atlanta and that area. And then I also didn't realize yeah. So C. Dolores Tucker, I always just heard her name really like in rap albums, especially that I think she, is she on All Eyes on Me or she on Me Against the World where Tupac's like C. Dolores Tucker calls her out. Uh, I never actually saw her interviewed. I feel like that all happened like a little bit earlier than I could be paying attention to it. Because 13, 1998 is really when I really started paying attention to hip-hop like in every way, shape, or form. And when I'm old enough to be able to listen to it without having to like go through my parents. Because obviously they didn't want me listening to that. So, yeah. So like by the time I listened to C. Dolores Tucker, she was already kind of out or heard her name. It was already kind of too late. But yeah, just looking her up and reading Nelson George about her, I didn't realize, uh, I don't think I knew she was black, is what I would say. I think that's my big takeaway. But it doesn't surprise me, and like, it goes back to that Ta-Nehisi Coates piece where he wrote on Bill Cosby long before we found out he was a rapist, uh, and talking about black conservatism and how there's large uh, segments of the black community that are conservative, and it's you know, but like not conservative as we've come to think of it now, just like certain aspects of um, 
you know, American black culture is conservative by, I don't know, historical standards. It's always been conservative. And uh, so it makes sense that C. Dolores Tucker would be that. But I, I just don't think I ever really put together that she was black. I, I never looked her up, so I just didn't know. And that brings me to my idea of, or my thought of how much the black middle class misunderstands the black lower class. That's a thing that Nelson George talks a lot, a lot about in this book. Um, he talks about, uh, he calls them buppies, which I actually think is a really great word. It's clearly black yuppies, but you know, and I, it's a bit outdone. It's like when I was in college, blipster, black hipster, now buppies and blurds. I know it's out. It's a bit, it's a bit hokey, but you know, whatever. I, I kind of liked it in here because it, you know, it was easy to just basically understand what he meant by, you know, black people who have gotten out of uh, the ghetto and then the ghetto centric culture he uses the term ghetto that's why i don't really like that term anymore but the ghetto centric culture of hip-hop in the 90s and you know on one hand the problem with the ghetto centric culture is that it makes everybody think that every black person is from the ghetto right okay but on the other hand you have buppies or just black middle class people forgetting about lower class black folks and also just misunderstanding them so like see Loris tucker she's like oh you know these genocidal gangster rap artists are pawns of the white man, but she doesn't realize how much of this stuff is like black owned, black supported. So he, uh, Nelson George brings up all, you know, he's on a panel speaking against C. Dolores Tucker, but he brings up all these examples. The one I found most fascinating was Master P. We always knew about the Master P No Limit Records scene. That's like right in my wheelhouse. But the one, the thing I didn't know is that he had a 90 minute movie that I found on YouTube that I got to watch now. Uh, that I had no, no idea about, but yeah, so like he brings up that and he talks about Scarface and all of those, but also like when I was coming up, uh, I, when I went to college and played basketball, all of my teammates were from around the country, dude from Florida. He listened to Roy Jones, like legitimately listened to Roy Jones Jr.'s rap records. Like they were good. And also Tum Tum had a friend from Ohio. He was super into Mike Jones. At that time, Mike Jones was just starting to pop up. Now, obviously Mike Jones, not from Ohio, but still. And then um, another big thing was, uh, but th the point is, is that Tum Tum, Mike Jones, Roy Jones Jr., these examples of just like your own record label making your own music and selling just to black people. I would have never met anybody who was listening to those artists outside of uh, like black people until black people supported them and got them to where they were. And then they popped like Mike Jones, like, you know, uh, Slim Thug, Paul Wall, who's obviously not black. But like regionally, either popular or popular among black folks, and then um, and then they blow up. But another example too is like Smack DVDs, and I remember this came up when um when that Drake and Pusha T beef happened, and people were like Pusha T took it a step too far talking about his kid, and then someone started posting old Smack DVD clips, and I used to watch Smack DVDs in college, and yeah, they're brutal. I mean, not like whatever. I mean, it's, you know, it's battle raps, and people will say anything, you know, just anything. But yeah, so there's all these examples of just like, you know, it's not the uh, pawn in a, in a white man's uh, game thing. It's black people from the ghetto, if you want to call it that, or from low economic or bad economic neighborhoods, poor places, poor areas, uh, supporting other black people and black owned businesses in those areas. And it happens to be that, you know, sometimes that's buying records. Ludicrous also did that griselda currently who i love conway the machine best rapper alive in my opinion love him well jay-z is the best rapper alive but conway conway the machine is the best like working rapper right now in my opinion i love conway the machine but yeah griselda same thing so 
yeah, anyway, it's just interesting the, the disconnect between the black middle class and the black lower class. And, you know, I'm from the suburbs, but grew up without money. You could debate where I fell in the socioeconomic ladder. Definitely didn't grow up with any money, but didn't grow up in a poor area. But uh felt like one of the important things is always to remember the people who are doing worse than you. And nothing's worse than uh, middle class people who it's like the, what do you call them, ladder immigrants? Like middle class black folks who get to where they're comfortable and they pull up that ladder, you know, or they talk bad about um, lower class black folks. Not to say that like there isn't room for criticism, you know, like the gun violence in Chicago or um, selling drugs or something like that. But like there's an empathetic way to talk about it and there's a constructive way to talk about it. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know. All right, all right, all right. We're going too long here. I knew I was going to go too long. It's a hip-hop podcast. The last thing I'm going to talk about is Puff Daddy. And I'm calling him Puff Daddy because he's Puff Daddy in the book because that's how long ago this was. And it's just crazy to think about how long Puff Daddy has been Puff Daddy. This book's 2004. I forgot Making the Band comes out in 2004. I forgot that... Uh, you know, the Dave Chappelle parody then is not too long after that. It's been almost 20 years since that happened. And he's been like a mogul. What's that movie he's in? Get him to the Greek. And he's been a mogul for like 20 plus years. I mean, obviously he's a billionaire. But I kind of just forgot. And I'll tell you something I damn sure forgot. <laughs> he played, uh, he was in the movie, he was in Raising in the Sun on Broadway, according to this book. And that's the most insane thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And then at the end of the book, they're like, oh, yeah, and he's going to be Robert Johnson in an upcoming HBO film. Now, luckily, that didn't end up happening. But I was reading it going like, oh, my, was there a point where Puff Daddy tried to be, or P. Diddy, where Diddy tried to be a real uh, actor? There, That happened? So, yeah, I just kind of forgot about that. Oh, there's also a lot of Russell Simmons talk in this book. I just don't like Russell Simmons. I just don't like Run DMC at all, at all, at all, at all. But not anything personal. But anyway, long time Diddy has been Diddy. Okay, we gotta stop. That's 36 minutes. I could talk about hip-hop all day long. Obviously, I enjoyed this book. I think that goes without saying. It's great. Uh, if you are... I, I feel like if you're younger and you don't know the story of hip-hop, this would be valuable. But if you're a hip-hop head and you don't know all the stuff that was just said, that would be odd. Still might be worth checking it out. But, yeah, this was great. Covers the history... Definitely comes out with a lot of songs, so I made a whole playlist of, um, it's like 60 songs deep of the different, you know, early hip-hop songs he's talking about, and some of the records that are most sampled, a few James Brown cuts here or there, stuff like that. So that's cool. I always like to do that. And, uh, yeah, so I mean, it's worth it to read in general. I just, for me, it's like, I don't even know. It's like I, I'm reading something I, I know for sure I'm going to enjoy. It's telling me some of the information, some I already know. So it's, I guess, in that way, a little repetitive. But, like, through no fault of the book's own, it's just that I love hip-hop that much. So, yeah, if you love hip-hop, read the book for sure. And uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Speaking of, there's a new Biggie book out that I just saw. It was all a dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him, by Justin Tinsley, who writes for The Undefeated, I think, on ESPN. So yeah, I'm probably going to read that at some point soon. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the next podcast, we're most likely going to do 
Murder in Montego Bay by Paula Lennon. I've already started reading it, really enjoying it. And then at some point in the future, somewhere, we'll read um, Distributed Blackness by Andre Brock Jr. But yeah, okay, we should stop here. Podcast has been going long enough. Please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or on SoundCloud. Uh, Check out the YouTube page. Got to make some more videos, kind of slacking there. The music is from the Keep Running intro and outro music. And yeah, 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 yeah. That's going to do it for this week. So see you next time. Until then... Stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. And there's time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>